0: I want to give a different kind of take on Christmas and the Christmas story this morning, and I call it Christmas According to Paul. And so I'm going to read some verses which are up on the screen from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-11. to 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing... and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The thing that makes the Christmas story so remarkable, as evangelist Reinhard Bonnke used to say, is not just that Jesus was born of a virgin, but that for the first and only time in history, someone made the decision to be born. In the eternal Council of heaven, Jesus submitted to the request of the Father, as the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. So Jesus agreed to leave his place of rulership and glory in heaven and enter the fallen world as a servant to rescue you and me from our sin. And that's, that's really the Christmas story, isn't it? Uh, Paul doesn't have the Christmas story specifically in mind, but in these words, he has some remarkable perspectives on it. In fact, it's interesting that some Bible scholars feel that these verses in Greek were a hymn. Andrew and I were talking about a hymn hidden in the text of Ephesians, and Here is another one that quite possibly was something that was sung by the church as a song, and Paul took the words and fashioned them. So Jesus came into the the first thing out of this is that Jesus came into this world as God. It says in verse 6, he came in the form of God. And this uh, word in Greek form emphasizes that Jesus was it wasn't just that he looked like God, it was or that he resembled God, he was the very same being as God himself he 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 was he wasn't uh just identical to the Father, he was in the form of God as if the form of God uh, was A sphere in which he existed, a garment in which he was clothed. He was God without being identical to the Father. And of course, the Trinity is one of the mysteries of the Christian faith, how God could come three in one. And it's one of those things that we will never be able to explain fully, uh, not because. It's irrational, but because our minds, our human minds, are not rational enough to comprehend who God is. And and yet Jesus comes as God, uh, as fully God, into this world, and yet distinct from the Father. Christ had, from all eternity, the status of God. He wasn't a created being, like the Jehovah's Witnesses tell us, that God created at a later date. Uh, Christ was always eternally God, but he made the decision to come into this world uh, to save us. And it's an incredible thing that God had a plan in place before the foundation of the world. Romans uh, chapter 8 at the end says that... um, He he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. So before the foundation of, of all time and space, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. The image of God is the image in which God created us from the very beginning. And of course, we lost that image of God when we sinned and fell into rebellion. But Paul says there in Romans that before God ever created us, he had a plan for us to be conformed to his image through Christ. God knew that we would fall and we would lose the image of God. We would stop being like him. But before he even created us, before he, we had even fallen innocent in rebellion, he already had a plan to restore the image. It's an incredible thing. Um, You know, we worry about our problems, don't we? But God has a solution to our problem even before we know we have a problem. And uh, God had a solution for the problem of our sin and rebellion even before that sin and rebellion occurred. So he came into this world as God. He was eternally existent. And yet, uh, he entered this world and made that decision. So, whatever the Father is in his nature as God, that the Son is also. Three times, Jesus declared himself to the Jews as, I am. And when he used that phrase, I am, it translates into the Hebrew word for God, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, He, the one who is, or I am who I am. Um, And so Jesus says, I am. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him, because they realized the claim that he was making. When you are looking at me, he said, you are looking at God. So Jesus, um, you you can say, you can have your own opinion of who Jesus is. If you're not a Christian, you don't believe that Jesus is God. But Um, As C.S. Lewis pointed out many years ago, you you either have to accept Jesus as who he said he was, as God, or else he's some kind of lunatic uh, because he claimed to be God. And what the world so often um, portrays of Jesus or portrays Jesus as some kind of great moral teacher, but that's the very thing that you can't say Jesus is because no great uh, exalted moral teacher would go around claiming he was actually God. Jesus was who he said he was, and of course he was a great moral teacher, but he was far more than that. Jesus was who he said he was, or he is a lunatic. And Jesus confronted this with the Jewish people and said, if you disagree with me, look at the evidence of my life. Have you you convicted me? Have any of you convicted me of sin? No. Have any of you found sin in my life? No. Look at the miracles. They're all meant to point to who I am. Christ came into this world in the form of God. He was and is and always will be God. That is something fundamental to our faith as Christians. And as the eternally existent second person of the Trinity, he sat in heaven with the Father, enjoying all that heaven had, but willingly made that decision to forsake, give up all of his privileges, stoop down to the lowest place, and enter this world in the full knowledge of where that would lead him to the cross of Calvary. He knew that he would be limited in this world, may reliant on the Holy Spirit, be restricted in some ways, and yet, and, and, and above all, have to endure the awfulness of that separation from the Father when he was c- carrying our sins on the cross, yet still he came. How much would you and I sacrifice, even for those we dearly love? And even if we would die for someone, we'd know that we would be going to a better place, but Christ came into this world, it wasn't a better place. It was a worse place, and yet he did it. So the first point is Jesus came into this world as God. Then the second thing this passage tells us is he came into this world to give and not to receive, because the next statement in verse 6 says this, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means um, something to be Taken advantage of, or something to be used for his advantage, he didn't count the fact of who he was as God as something that he could take advantage of or use for his own advantage. That's what Paul means here. So instead of what he's saying is that instead of uh, considering that the fact of his being in the form of God was his his ticket for an easy ride or forgetting everything that he wanted, Jesus actually realized it was his greatest opportunity for giving. He came into this world not to receive, but to give. His being equal to God, as we see in verse 7, didn't lead to his being filled up or self-fulfilled, but to his being emptied. Getting is not God's way. Giving is God's way. Fallen people are takers, but God is a giver. God put us in the garden. He said, here's everything you could possibly want. And the enemy comes into the picture and says, but there's that one thing that God has said. And God had said, for good reason, you mustn't have. And the enemy focused our attention on that one thing that we don't have. And we took it. And ever since then, we've been takers. It's what I call the moment when the poverty spirit entered the human race. Poverty spirit is no matter how much we have, we're never satisfied with it. I read an a, uh, economic study recently that <clears throat> it analyzed um, the, the, the economic satisfaction of different levels of people, and the conclusion was that the richer people were the more money they felt they needed to be happy. So the more money they had, the more money they felt they needed. So being, uh, being uh, wealthy, you you can have a poverty spirit. The poverty spirit, which is, I've never got enough, and I want more, is something that is is just there in our fallen human nature. We, we still uh, have a, an eye, a keen eye out for the, the thing that our neighbor has that we don't have, even when God has blessed us with what we do have. But Jesus, that's not what Jesus' nature was. Jesus came not to get, not to receive. Jesus had all the riches of heaven. He had no poverty spirit. And because of that, he came to give, and God wants us to be like him. God wants us to be a people who give, and he promises that as we give, he will restore and bless us with even more. To give away, to count others more significant than ourselves, is something in the very heart of God. It's why the church would be the most attractive place for people to be, because um, We live in a broken, fragmented world. It's getting worse, not better. But church is family. Church is a safe place. Church is a place where people are here for one another and to give to one another. Granted, we're all imperfect. We don't do it, uh, you know, the way that we would like to do it. We make mistakes and so on. And yet, this is family. This is a place where we're here and our purpose is to be here to give, to give to one another and to give to people outside. And so uh, we, we've got, in a broken society, we've got a great product to offer uh, as the family of God. And so uh, when Jesus came into this world, he, first of all, he came into this world as God. Secondly, he came into this world not to receive but to give, and he came to follow God's way when he came into this world at Bethlehem. Not his own, he had a choice. He was equal with God. The text says he didn't. He didn't uh, have to become equal with God. He already was God. The question was, what was he going to do with the status that he had? Would he choose it to exploit it for his own advantage? Nobody had ever had such advantage. Yet nobody ever so completely refused to use his own advantage for his benefit. But instead, he chose to use his advantage for our benefit at his cost. This word here, where it says um, he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, the word is. Gra- to grasp or get or use for our advantage it's a world it's a word that describes a whole way of life that the people that Paul was writing to lived the whole way of life you and I lived before we became Christians. the whole way of life that their pagan culture celebrated and modeled the this great God of the Bible, the Christians that Paul was writing to. Before they became Christians, they worshiped pagan deities, which were, uh, were schemers and liars and connivers, and they weren't uh, people that you would, they weren't, uh, they didn't set a model of conduct that you would expect. Um, but this great God of the Bible, who is holy and loving and caring, He has entered into human history to show us how to live. And he says, says, but he he didn't come into this world, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he came to empty himself or pour himself out. He didn't seek to be filled up, but to be poured out. In our relationship with the Lord, you and I have access to all the fullness of God, to the presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to beg God or grovel before God to ask him to fill us with his Spirit. Everything he has is freely available to us. There's nothing that that God could do to make anything more available than he's already done at the cross. Uh, But in order, to, uh, in order for what the fullness of the love that God has given us to be released in our lives, we need to have the same attitude as Jesus. We need to come to the Lord not to be filled up, but to be poured out. Because if we come to the Lord simply to be filled up, and that's it, then we're not... Getting what the whole point of Christianity is about, and if we want the love and mercy and grace of God to flow through us god doesn't hasn't made us to be you know giant reservoirs that hold more and more and more and more water. God has made us to be conduits to be channels, the water flows through us and out to a needy world around us, and the more uh the the clearer or Andrew was telling us last night that some of the drains seem to be partly blocked in his house. And of course, Dan had that experience too. And when the drains are blocked, the water can't get through. So we need to get a plumber to clear the drains out. God willing, that will happen shortly um, so that the water can flow through. And God wants us to be clear conduits of his blessing. And the more the blessing and the love of God flows through to people that we have contact with, the more God Himself will pour His Spirit into our lives. And and it's an amazing thing. Uh, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. And don't run around for all these things. Just give of yourself, of your time, of your resources, of your effort, of your money, and so on, and then God will look after the rest. And that's what Jesus did. He came into this world to give and not to receive. And he calls us to do the same thing. Jesus was always looking for more opportunities to pour himself out. You you, you don't read in the Gospels how Jesus just put his feet up and sat around and asked other people to wait on him. That never happened. He kept... Where did he get... The ability to do it, well, he kept going back to the Father. He kept going back to pray, to ask the Father to send more resources to him so that he could give more. Paul says elsewhere, he says, he became poor to make us rich. And how did he pour himself out? How did he give himself? Verse 7 says he came as a slave, as a servant. The word in doulos, it means a bond slave. Uh, the, the lowest form of society. That's how he came. He, and he came not just as a slave, in a sense, to God and God's purposes, but he came as a servant, as a slave to us. We can't spiritualize our faith to say that we're servants of God if we're not also serving God's people. How can you lo- say that you love God whom you haven't seen when you don't love your brothers and sisters whom you have seen, the Bible tells us? That's part of the giving and the pouring out that God wants. He wants us to live the way that Jesus lived. He came to give and not to receive. And uh, the biggest obstacle to revival In our country, isn't the opposition of the world, it's the lack of the power of the Holy Spirit and the character of Christ in the church. So, we need to cry out to God for more of the power of His Spirit. If we live as people who truly give, that's a very attractive model of people will come. So, number one, Jesus came into this world as God. He was truly God, no doubt about it. Number two, he came into this world to give and not to receive, and he calls us to follow in his footsteps in that respect. And number three, he came for the cross. We cannot see the manger without seeing the cross. The manger, of course, wasn't a glorious place. Uh, It must have seemed uh, glorious, in a way, to Mary and Joseph, because their child was miraculously conceived, supernaturally announced. It must have seemed glorious to the shepherds who witnessed the visitations of angels. It must have seemed glorious to the wise men who had come from such a distance following heavenly signs. But it was a humble place that Jesus came into. He came for the cross. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came as God, he came to give, not to receive, and third, he came for the cross. Even in the midst of all those manifestations of prophecy and signs and wonders and so on at the birth of Jesus, The prophet Simeon shows up and says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul. He knew that something was coming that was going to be very difficult. And of course, Mary may not have understood fully and didn't understand, I'm sure, fully at the time what Simeon was talking about, but Jesus did know. He knew when he came into this world that there was only one possible destination, which was Calvary. He entered the world at Bethlehem to obey the Father, even, verse eight, death unto death on a cross. Much as we love Christmas, we always have to remember that Christmas is just the prelude to Easter. The manger without the cross is just religious sentimentality, just like you get walking through a department store with Christmas carols going on. There's no meaning to it. But the manger with the cross, that's the power of God. That's the salvation of God. So Jesus came into this world for the cross. He came into this world as God. He came into this world to give, not to receive. He came into this world for the cross. Now you can begin to see why I think this is Paul's take on the Christmas story. And then, starting at verse 9, verse 9 says, I will say in a moment, Uh, therefore. Now, this word therefore, it's like a hinge in which the whole passage turns, because up until now, it has all been about Jesus coming into this world as a servant, as a slave, death on a cross, and so on. But now therefore marks a change in the passage. The previous verses have spoken about Christ's humiliation, but the next verses, the rest of of the passage, speaks of his exaltation. And so the therefore expresses a truth. It expresses the truth that the exaltation of Jesus was an inevitable consequence of his humiliation. And, of course, that's an eternal principle of God, that humility leads to exaltation as much as pride leads to downfall. The more we humble ourselves, the more God will bless us the more we try to make something of ourselves, the less, in fact, we will become. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and he set the example for that. The first act of the greatest humiliation in human history took place at Bethlehem. The last act of that humiliation took place at Calvary. But then, in one dramatic intervention, the resurrection, God raised Jesus from the depths to the heights. It says here, God has highly exalted him. And uh, the word is, uh, is a very strong word. It occurs only here in the whole of the New Testament. It means to super exalt, to raise to the highest, highest heights. It's a very strong word. It's not just that Christ is raised higher than everybody else, but it's that Christ, who made himself so very low, has now been lifted so very high, he is in a realm totally different from anything or anyone else. And then he says, God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The biblical concept of name is the concept of identity. Now, the name Jesus means Savior or Deliverer, the one who saves. But it says here that he has given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Um, Now, it's a little bit tricky to explain this, but... It's like, what is this name that God has given him in his exaltation? God gave him a name in his exaltation. That at this name of Jesus, not the name Jesus, but the name belonging to Jesus, this new name that God has given him in his exaltation, what is this name that at this name every knee should bow? So, in his exaltation, Jesus is to be known by a new name, a name belonging to him and him alone. And that name is revealed in the next verse where it says the purpose of God is that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this word Lord, in, in Greek it's kurios, but in Hebrew it's adonai. And Because the Jewish people at the time of Jesus felt that they could not, the name of God, Yahweh, by which he revealed himself to Moses, the name of God was so holy that you couldn't even say it. So, whenever in the Bible it got to Yahweh and they were reading it, they would read it as Lord, as Adonai, instead of Yahweh. Because you couldn't pronounce the name Yahweh, it's too holy to be pronounced. And so, here, Here Paul tells us that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Adonai, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That's the name of Jesus. In his exaltation, he is revealed as Yahweh. He is revealed as God himself. So, humanly speaking, everybody knew him as Jesus. There were lots of other Jesuses in Palestine. In fact, in the Hispanic world, there's still Jesuses. There's a a brother in the Hispanic church in Miami that we go to call, and and, and, and it's probably some Hispanic people here, but it's Jesus. But actually, it's spelled Jesus. It's a little bit odd, sort of, you know, there's Jesus sitting over there in the second row. Um, But it's still a name in the Hispanic world. Uh, And it was a very common name in the Hebrew world. But this name that God gives him is a new name, a new identity that everyone is going to bow before. You're not going to know him just as the Jesus, the carpenter anymore. You're now going to know him as God, as Yahweh, as Adonai, as God of gods and Lord of lords. In the resurrection, Jesus is revealed as God. And that, of course, is critical difference between Christianity and any other faith. Because in other world religions, God doesn't come into this world himself, personally. There may be a prophet or a representative. And God certainly doesn't come into his world, die, and then be raised from the dead. It's what makes Christianity totally different and unique from every other faith. So every tongue is to confess and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he's revealed at his return whether uh, confessing you know joyfully in obedience if you're saved or whether confessing in fear and terror if you're lost you will confess that he is God he who came to the manger in utter humiliation, and lived out that humiliation to the end, is now revealed by God's eternal command as sovereign Lord over the entire universe. He came to be exalted. He came as God. He came... Uh, he came as God. He, God i of lost my points. Uh, he came... You can read it. To give... He came for the cross, but he came to be exalted. And finally, he came to be followed. And that's a really important point for us because, you know, you you can preach a nice message with all correct theology in it, but what's the point of it all? Well, Jesus came to be followed. The question is, How do we respond to all of this? How do we respond to this baby in the manger? Our response is really important because the passage concludes that God's purpose in exalting Christ is that every knee should bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. And as I said, there's there's two ways we can confess. We can confess him as our Lord and Savior now, confessing our sins, asking him to be Lord of our life, or if we don't do that, we will still have to acknowledge him at the final judgment, but then it won't go well for us. God wants that every tongue confess him now. God's desire is not that anyone should perish. He sent his son into this world, at the, paid the highest possible price for us to be restored to God. God has done his part but what about us? And if there's anybody here this morning or anybody listens to me talking through the live feed or YouTube or whatever, that's my challenge. Have you accepted Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Maybe there's someone that has never made that decision. If you haven't, then please do it. Talk to somebody. Ask Christ into your life. But if we have accepted Christ and are Christians, the question is, are we prepared to take the message of Christmas seriously? Because if we are, it means following Jesus in radical discipleship. There, there's you know, something that happens when you become a follower of Jesus, which is you never know where you're going to wind up. You never know what's going to happen happened to you in life. Uh, My wife, when she followed Jesus, never imagined that it would lead her to a church that I'd started in the north of England and she'd wind up, you know, with eight children and now nine grandchildren traveling all over the place with me. Uh, She never imagined that. Uh, even, Even some of our own kids who made some wrong turns, but now we look back and see how God used it uh, in their lives when they turned their lives over to Christ, and they wound up in places they would never have imagined. If, if you follow Jesus, you'll wind up in all sorts of situations, some of which will be challenging, but it's always worth it. It's always worth it. You can be God. God can do a lot with a little, but he can do everything with nothing. So if you're nothing this morning, and you think you've got nothing to offer, you're a great candidate for the kingdom of God because you don't think more highly of yourself. You're coming in a place of humility, like I was talking about a few moments ago, and God can use you because in using us with our, in our own imperfection and with our own lack of abilities, but if we lay ourselves before Christ and say, Lord, just use me, then he will get the glory out of our lives. And it's amazing what God can do with ordinary people. Most people that God uses are ordinary people. And uh, if I had the time, I'd tell the story of the I only I, I can allude to it and skip over it really quickly, but there was a man that ran a shoe store in Boston in the 1850s. And all, all he did was teach a Sunday school class and felt he was a failure. There was a young lad in the class. He had, had no success in the young lad was only there because his uncle had ordered him to be there and said, you can't work in, in my shoe store um, if, uh, if you don't come to church. So this guy was a Sunday school teacher, Sorry, i got the shoe store and the Sunday school teacher mixed up. That the uncle was a Christian, owned the shoe store, employed his nephew, said, but you, you can't have the job unless you go to Sunday school. He went to Sunday school, had a bad attitude. The Sunday school teacher felt he was a failure. And, but he had such a burden for, for this boy in his heart that he went down to the shoe store one day and he just put his hand in his shoulder and said, you know, sur- surrender your life to Christ and he thought he's not listening, walked out. But that boy gave his life to Christ, and his name was Dwight L. Moody. And he became the greatest evangelist in the nation. And, and through a long chain of events of people who came to Christ through his ministry, and then through somebody else's ministry, Billy Graham came to Christ. And it all goes back to this Sunday school teacher who went down to the shoe store and put his hand on somebody's shoulder, thought probably, I have, I've done no good and been a failure. You know, some people that are very prominent in this world will turn out to be nothing in eternity. A lot of people. There's a lot of people like that guy in the body of Christ today. And God is using you, even if you don't realize he's using you. But you've just got to make yourself available. He came to be followed. Are you prepared to follow Jesus? To you know you may feel I've not got much to offer like the widow at the temple that day that had the tiniest coins, she put them in. It was her offering that's still being talked about 2000 years later. Not all the rich people that gave much more. But she gave everything. Are you prepared to take what you have and give it to Jesus in the knowledge that he will use you and the fruit of your life far above and beyond anything you can possibly imagine. If you follow Christ this way, you'll lose what you can't keep anyway to gain what you can ever lose. If we move beyond the sentimentality of the season and into the path of true commitment, that's where we find God's purpose for our lives. No matter how much it costs here, cost Christ everything, no matter how much it may cost you, in due course, God will raise you up with Christ to the higher height, to the highest heights that He is presently in. He will, you will, with Him, enter the presence of the ruler of the universe, you'll find your destiny at the foot of God's throne. That is the real ultimate message and meaning of Christmas for us this morning, and I hope it's both a challenge and an encouragement to you. Let's stand for a moment. I'll pray and then hand it over to, back over to Andrew. Lord, uh, when we feel you coming into our lives, calling us to be followers of you, we always feel totally inadequate. Uh, what And we feel, what could we possibly offer? But Lord, thank you that you have said here in Scripture that if we follow the example of Jesus and lay at the foot of the cross what we have to give, that you will take it and lift us up with him. If we come not to give, not to receive, but to give. If we come to carry the cross, along with Christ, that you will make our lives of an eternal significance. Regardless of how much we even see before we die, in eternity, we'll find out how much you've used us. So I pray you'd encourage each of us this morning along this path of discipleship. Lord, we are so grateful that you came into this world with the attitude that you did, that you came as God, that you came to give, that you came for the cross. We're so grateful that you were highly exalted, and we know that you came now, you come now still for us to follow you. You come still with that call, come after me. And Lord, I pray that none of us would miss you on that incredibly exciting journey. Of discipleship. So please encourage and lift our hearts this morning. And thank you, Father, for your goodness and graciousness to us in sending your wonderful Son into this world. And give us opportunities this Christmas season to share the true meaning and message of Christmas with other people. To your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.